Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host, uh, joined as usual uh, with my good friend, Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we're joined by uh, Internet, and, and he's in Illinois and I'm in Ohio, but I'm, I'm hoping we're uh, joining with you wherever you are. And I, I do pray that our, our discussions on this program are encouragement to your faith, encouragement you to study Scripture, and to some of you, an encouragement to start Scripture studies at your local parish. And we hope that these discussions help you do that and help you feel comfortable doing that. We're, we're, we're purposefully trying not to uh, be too academic in this, though we like to bring up those issues if they're pertinent. But we want to encourage you to know this is a one, the, the inspired, infallible Word of God is an encouragement to us that was given to us through the Holy Spirit through the church, so that we might know the Word of God. And as it says in Second Timothy, that we might be able to, to walk according to the way that God wants us to walk. So our study of Romans uh, that we've been through for a number of months, and Ken, I think we're going to get done before the summer, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, it's a big book. I hope so. <laughs> but uh, we, we tackled this book because for many Many think the book of Romans uh, is one that a Catholic would be uncomfortable with, as if the book of Romans is uh, more a defense of the Protestant understanding, for example, of justification. And we've hoped that you've seen that once understood in the wider context of sacred tradition, that Romans is very much a Catholic book that calls us to holiness. And uh, when we finish the chapter 11 today, we're going to enter into that section of Romans, which is the praxis section, and how to live out our faith. But before we do that, we're going to finish up chapter 11 today, uh, dealing with that, that issue of what about the Jews? What about the Jews that haven't accepted our Lord Jesus Christ? And we're going to hear Paul's answer to that, that he gave 2,000 years ago, and here we are now wondering... What about the Jews? What about our brothers and sisters uh, that are, are yet in the fold? Before we get to that, though, we do have an email that um, Ken and I tend to spend the first half hour on that. And I love your emails. Thank you for any of your thoughts. And actually, today's email is the compilation of four tweets that I received uh, during the past week or so. Um, and I put them together. Those of you who do tweets, I don't do tweets. Uh, I like birds, but I don't do tweets. Uh, you know, the, the problem with tweets is you've got to fit your thought into a condensed uh, context. So sometimes they're hard to understand. But let me read this question. It's a good, good question. And the, uh, the author writes, Dear Marcus and Dr. Howell, on a recent Journey Home episode, the guest mentioned 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, as a rebuttal to non-Catholic Christians. But reading on to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, you see why they are Protestant, where they see the error of imposing forbidden doctrine law, even to marry, making them subjects. For in Christ we freely serve. We know all those who believe of Jesus going his way in spirit are his. Though they fall short in the flesh are justified. It is of the spirit that we sin, taking on spirits of evil, that which defiles are denying the truth of spirits of error. Now, again, it's, 
it seems a little choppy, but uh, he has a good question. In summary, we had pointed out on that Journey Home program, the guest had pointed out, the importance of 1 Timothy 3.14. And let me read that. This one Paul tells Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And I don't remember that episode, honestly, but the issue is that 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15 points out that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And that was a verse that was important to my own journey. And Ken, I think it was to you to to recognize that it's not the scriptures alone that are the pillar and bulwark of the truth, but the church. And then that leads to the long series of questions, well, which church and and then why the Catholic church? But this author says, but if you keep reading to chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, you'll see why people remain Protestant. So let me read 1 Timothy 4, 13, uh, 1 through 3, excuse me. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, the reason this question is a good one is because I remember being bothered by that passage, too. When I was a non-Catholic, it sure sounded to me like Paul was warning about a future time when people would depart from the faith and get into certain rules that would forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods. And that sure sounds like Catholics, especially as this program is being broadcast during Lent. It sure sounds like Catholics. Ken, did you have a problem with this passage before you came into the church? Well, it's it, it certainly on the surface appears to be a, almost a prediction of the post-apostolic church, right? Where uh, yep. people will start adding all these different laws and so forth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can understand why a person would have this kind of difficulty. But again, this is one of the problems that we face so many times when reading the Bible. We can read the Bible on the surface and again and begin to identify it with certain events of our time. The way that people read the prophets and the dispensationalists read the prophets and see, you know, the current events and, and, and current events that are going on now as being predicted by the Bible. Um, <clears throat> Paul here is talking about something that is very different. He's talking about something that we know of, for example, that, that came up with the Montanists in the second century where they literally forbid marriage, where they literally... And the Catholic Church doesn't forbid marriage and honors marriage. Uh, it restricts marriage with regard to the priesthood, and that's something we can talk about. Um, it also, in terms of its abstinence from foods, uh, th this is talking about abstinence as a, um, as a matter of faith. The Catholic Church doesn't, doesn't make... Abstinence from food, a matter of faith. It's a discipline of the church. It's not a doctrine of the church. Yeah, and both those ideas of celibacy and abstinence and fasting, as you said, are disciplines of the church. And it's a very important distinction. 
uh, between disciplines and doctrine and dogma. And we know that our Lord Jesus, as well as the Apostle Paul, both said that some of the disciples might be called to abstinence from marriage and food. And you can find that in Matthew 19, where our Lord talks about those that are eunuchs naturally or by choice for the kingdom. Um, in Matthew 6, 16, Jesus talks about fasting during the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And in that passage, he assumes that they will fast because he says, when you fast. So that was a discipline that our Lord was affirming. And Paul does the same in 1 Corinthians, for example. In chapter 7, verse 32, he talks about the the challenges of a married man versus an unmarried man and how a, how a uh, during he's envisioning, especially during these difficult end times, that if you're unmarried, stay unmarried. If you're married, stay married. You know, he talks about the freedom that comes with a person who chooses to be celibate. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, he talks about uh, people who eat food that's been offered to idols and, and sometimes that when your brother doesn't understand um, your eating habits, if if you're going to be a stumbling block for them, then maybe it's better for you not to eat meat because it might be a stumbling block. So in both cases, this discipline of uh, abstaining from food or marriage are for the benefit of self-sacrifice, you know, you know that, that the value of fasting, as here we are in, in Lent, is so that in the end, it strengthens our will, uh, it strengthens our fortitude, and it also helps us appreciate so much of what we take for granted. And Ken, it would seem to me that there is a message in this passage for modern Catholics that see abstinence from marriage or see abstinence from food merely as a rule of the church. I, I do this because that's what the church says to do. And in a sense, if they're doing it for that way, they're not going along with the instructions of Paul. Well, that's a very good point. I think that this matter of um, believing in the church and church um, that we all as faithful Catholics want to do uh, is a bit of a two-edged sword. Um, and here's two ways in which people uh, get this wrong. One is the side of the if the person who wants to be extremely faithful to the church, and they will say things like, well, you know, I, I do it because the church says so. But they don't understand, but perhaps not understanding why the church says that. The church doesn't impose these arbitrary rules on us for no reason. The reason the church asks us to fast on to, uh, on uh, Ash Wednesday or on Good Friday and to have some form of abstinence um, or fasting uh, during the time of Lent is because of the spiritual benefit that it can bring to us. By little acts of self-denial, we come closer to uh, bigger acts of self-denial, which may ultimately, of course, express itself in martyrdom. The other mistake that people make is people who don't, I mean, they're Catholic, but they don't take seriously the Catholic Church's teachings on certain things, or nor its practices. And they say, oh, those are just, you know, I believe in Jesus, but these are man-made practices, and so, you know, they're insignificant, they're not, they're not important. Well, 
just because they're customs doesn't mean they're not important. And the mistake that those people are making is that when we fast, let's say on on, um, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, when we refrain from eating certain things during Lent, when we have a time, this six-week period of Lent in which we are engaged in these these, uh, practices of self-denial, what it does is it unifies us together as the people of God. And that's God's desire, is to bring us together to have the same spirit in Christ Jesus. And when Catholics um, poo-poo that or make it sound as if it's just a you know a human rule and therefore we're not obliged to follow it, what they're doing is they're saying, I want to be separate from the church. And that's actually a very dangerous position to be in, because in that case, you're going, you're on the first step to where we were as growing up, uh, and that is as Protestants, where we wanted to be separate from the historic church. So the right attitude, I think, that Paul uh, is in gen- is saying here in this text that you quoted, um, Marcus, is that he's saying that we should recognize that not everybody's called to celibacy, not everybody may be called to some level of fasting, but everybody is called to the gospel values that are embedded in those practices. And so for a married person, celibacy, um, uh, chastity might be seen one particular way or is practiced a certain way. But for a unmarried person, chastity is practiced another way. But the the the, their, the idea, the underlying truth is there for us all to embrace. You know, I was thinking of another example of people who are outside of a particular religious faith misunderstanding why they do things in that religious faith. Yeah, and, oh, that's true. And there's a lot of, yeah. you know, I live in central Ohio, and I'm only about, I'm less than 50 miles from Amish communities. And I can drive out in the country and, and find myself always drive, trying to drive my car between the buggies and slowing down and, and uh, you know, watching all the, the, the very young Amish boys and girls in their little blue outfits playing. And, and uh, in fact, the other day I was watching a couple dozen of them snow, uh, sledding down a snow hill, all wearing their blue uniforms. And... You know, I've heard people say, you know, those hypocritical Amish, you know, they, they don't want to drive cars and they don't want to, you know, that's a part of their faith to not use electricity, but they're they're wearing their Nike shoes and they're wearing their blue overalls and they're paying the guy next door to drive them in a car, which they really own, but they don't, you know, that they pay the guy to run, to take them over to McDonald's so they can use the phone. And what a <laughs> bunch of hypocrites. But they don't understand that the, the use of electricity or the, the not use of electricity by the Amish, or the not owning of cars, is not a matter of their religion, just like this issue here. It's a discipline of their community that they chose over 100 years ago when they, dis, when they were faced with the issue when Thomas Edison was trying to convince all the little communities to buy into the grid of electricity And the Amish community was faced with this question, and they asked two questions. If we buy into this, number one, will we be able to prevent the the other culture from coming into our culture? Will we be able to preserve our culture? And number two, once we opt in, will we be able to get out? And they answered both questions with a no. We won't be able to preserve our culture, 
and we would never be able to get back out again once we got in. And you know, they were exactly right. You know, they were. They were exactly yeah. right because we see it today, yeah. all of us, yeah. our Christian yeah. culture on how technology and the, and the media and electronics, how Christian culture has been uh, uh, challenged uh, and in many cases lost. Look at Europe right. because of the input of all these other cultures. And once you're in, it's so hard to get out. They were right. So now when they can wear Nike shoes and, and ride in somebody else's car and go use the phone at the McDonald's, that is the decision of their community. It's their practice. It's not their religious issue. It's about saving their culture. And we can learn a lot from them. Paul is not saying the discipline of choosing not to marry or the discipline of avoiding certain foods for certain disciplinary reason that's not the problem it's if you think you're a more holy person because you didn't eat fish or something you miss the point that's yeah. not what it's about well marcus i might just bring up here to the uh, you pointed us to matthew 19 uh, because particularly the question of priestly celibacy a, a big issue to both non-catholics and to catholics i would say who don't really understand it and there's one thing we could leave our, our um, listeners with today, and that is that Jesus himself authorized the possibility, the reality of priestly celibacy in Matthew 19. After talking about marriage, um, he says um, to the disciples, to his apostles, he says that not all can receive the word. And then he speaks about three classes of eunuchs. There are eunuchs who are that way, were born that way from their mother's womb. Uh, that's a person who, uh, I suppose, who cannot enter into sexual relationships. Then he says there are those that have been made eunuchs by men. That is, I suppose, that means castration. And then there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Now, it's that last group those eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, they have chosen to refrain from sexual relations and from marriage for the sake of something higher. That's what motivates, that's what the Catholic priesthood is about. It's not about uh, denying the goodness of marriage, God forbid. I mean, the church, and I and I can speak from, from personal experience, I know what other Christians think about marriage. I know what the Catholic Church teaches about marriage. And I can tell you, the Catholic Church has the highest view of marriage I've ever seen yeah. among any Christians. And it says, you know, you must honor this marriage. You must fight at all costs to keep it together. You must do these things because marriage is a sacred and holy institution. But what Jesus is saying here is that some can choose to forego that on their of their own volition not forced upon them of their own volition for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's what our dear, dear beloved brother Rex does. Uh, yep. He's foregone marriage. He's not a priest. He's a religious. He's a hermit. Uh, he's foregone that um, a marriage precisely for the sake of the kingdom of God so that he can devote himself to, um, to, the, uh, to prayer for the kingdom of God. You know, I was working... Uh, reading through the database recently, Ken, of of so many non-Catholic 
clergy and, and laity that have come to us with questions about the church. And I was reading one of the dialogues with one young seminarian. He was a Presbyterian seminarian exploring the Catholic Church. And one of the, the things he was saying was that in his prayer life, his devotion to Christ, his desire to be obedient to the will of God, he was sensing in his life a call to celibacy. But he was struggling with the fact that within his tradition, there was no room for celibacy. You know, and, and I, I've often wondered that amongst, you know, so much Protestantism doesn't even have a category for men yeah, and women who may be called to dedicate their life in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ and to St. Paul. But they're looked, it looked down upon. That's true. Uh, mm-hmm. When in fact, they, want to, they need to be freed up to follow the call of God. Mm-hmm. And maybe another thing to mention to the audience is, you know, we're talking about the Western rite of the Catholic Church. People have to remember there are, I think, at least 20 rites in the church, Ken. Mm-hmm. And 22. Mm-hmm. 22. And only mm-hmm. one of them that I know of has the discipline of priestly celibacy. All the other rites, which are under the idea, under the category of Eastern rites, uh, encourage their priests to be married. The the bishops still, the discipline is celibacy, but not the priesthood. So this is just a discipline within the Latin rite that, uh, that the bishops of the church over the last 2,000 years have seen as the call of God for priesthood in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church. We've got five minutes to the break, Ken. There's one more question that this gentleman posed, and I think we ought to deal with it before we get into Romans. We'll just spend, if you don't mind, because uh, he did mention beyond that question, he made a couple comments that I'd like us to address. He said, he kind of said that um, we know all those who believe of Jesus going his way in the spirit are his. Uh, those who fall short in the flesh are though they fall short in the flesh, are still justified, is what he is saying. This issue of justification he's touching on. It is of the spirit that we sin, taking on spirits of error, that which defiles are denying the truth of the spirit of error. You know, it's a little choppy there, but he's talking about this idea that those who are of Jesus live by the spirit. And he's, it seems to me that he's referring to those passages by St. Paul, where he's calling us not to walk by the flesh, but by the spirit. Uh, Peter talks about being anointed of the Spirit. John talks about being anointed of the Spirit. But, you know, the, the just the one verse that I want to point out in Galatians 5.13, Paul warns. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. All through Galatians, he talks about our need to not live by the flesh, but by the Spirit. But he also warns that there's a danger of thinking that I don't need anybody else to tell me what it means to live by the Spirit. All I need is the, is the Word of God, and the Spirit will guide me. John says in 1 John, you have an anointing there where you have need of no one to teach you. And so it can lead up the idea that any rules that a church impose on me uh, are not of the Spirit because I am to be free to live by the Spirit. And that's what Paul's warning about in Galatians, about the libertines. People that think, well, now that I've got the Spirit, I can do anything I want. In fact, another place, Ken, he talks about maybe sin more 
that grace may be abound. He talked about that early in mm-hmm. Romans. But mm-hmm. really the whole overall context of the New Testament documents imply that we need the teachers of the church, Paul and Peter and James and John, to make sure that we understand what it means to live by the Spirit. Well, that, that's the reason why uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus were written. They are the, you might say, the church epistles uh, par excellence. Um, in Galatians and even in Romans, Paul is dealing with the questions about salvation in an individual sense. He's dealing with uh, the questions of uh, how one is justified, and he's making the insist, of course, that it's not by obedience to the Mosaic law, not by circumcision, that one is saved, but one is saved through grace. And that, but, but that grace always brings with it a renewal of the heart, and the renewal of the heart issues forth in obedience. And so when Paul says in those texts that about being free from the law and so forth, he's not implying that the church is not needed. But it's at that very moment, then he's not dealing with that question. But in First and Second Timothy and Titus, he's dealing with the, the role of the church for the young pastors, the young bishops, Timothy and Titus. And that's why he says in our text uh, that we were, that this man was questioning, he says to Timothy that you should wait, you should, if, if I'm delayed in getting to you, I'm writing these things so that you will know how one ought to live, one how ought to behave in the house of God. And then he goes on to define what that house of God is. It is the church of the living God. And then he adds another qualification. It's the pillar, and it is the foundation of truth. Um, You know, that pillar, at least in the ancient world, pillars in the midst of the the piazzas, the the, the big spaces there like there is in front of St. Peter's, those pillars were like signed markers. That's what he's Mm -hmm. saying, that the church is a sign so that you know where you are. Now, and it's not denying that you have freedom. It's only saying that it's the place where we come to to get our orientation. All right. Thank you, Ken. When we come back from the break, we're going to look at Romans chapter 11, 25 through 36. And maybe during the break, you might take a chance to get your Bibles out and read those passages. And we'll look at them together in just a moment. See you then. God bless. I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Hall. And just again to remind you, we'd love to hear from you. Go to the website, deepinscripture.com. Uh, you can find out all the archived programs, uh, listen to them uh, through podcast. Uh, we'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at dis at chnetwork.org. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter, as this gentleman did earlier with his question. Romans 11 through 2536, this is the conclusion of Paul's long section uh, that he's dealing with in this question of the Jews. Ken, if you would, could you kind of summarize the context for our audience of this passage we're going to look at? Well, this we're coming to the uh, end. It's a beautiful end, too, that we're coming to, uh, where Paul breaks out in this um, uh, sort of ador- adoration of praise of God and his providence, where he, he says in verse uh, 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Uh, but what leads him to that is the consideration of God dealing with the world and I think there's two things. One is what he knows, what Paul knows for certain, and what Paul doesn't know for certain. What he knows for certain is, as he says in this text, that God has, that God's gifts and God's call are irrevocable. He says that in verse 29. He says, for the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And he's saying that with regard to the Jews, because in verse 28, he said, that and, and let me paraphrase 20, uh, 28 for a moment. He says, now, with regard to the gospel, it may appear that the uh, Jews are enemies of God for your sake. But with regard to election, that is God choosing of them, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And then he goes on to say, and the reason I know this is because the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. That's what Paul knows. So he knows that God has not given up on the Jews, and that's what led him back in chapter 11 and verse 2 to show that God has not given up on the Jews because he says, hey, I'm an Israelite too. Or rather in verse 1 he says, has God rejected his people? Well, it could never be that because God has, you see, God has chosen me. I'm, I'm a believer in Christ. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. So he's a Jew who believes. So then in chapter 11, what we've been studying here, Marcus, in the last couple of weeks is this wonderful uh, literary metaphor that, that Paul is using with regard. He talks about the vine. The Jews were the vine, and we see that based upon Old Testament history, like in Psalm 80, where it speaks about Israel as being the vine. But 
when when the Messiah finally came into the world, they didn't believe in him. So what happened? Well, in a way, they were cut off, and the Gentiles were grafted in. This is Paul's main analogy in in uh, chapter eleven. Uh, the Gentiles are grafted in. They they were foreign uh, plants, but they were grafted into the main vine. Now, what Paul is arguing is, if even a strange and foreign plant can be grafted into the main vine, that is, the Gentiles can be brought into the people of God, thank God you and I are Gentiles, we've been brought in, um, then how much more would the native plant be able to be regrafted back into the vine? And that's where we come to verses 23 and 24, Marcus, um, where Paul says that they too, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be regrafted into the vine. God is able to do that again. And he says, but, but if you, who are a strange and, you know, un, a, sort of a wild uh, branch, could be, you're against, it's not your nature to be in this vine, and yet God brought you into this this wonderful, um, beautiful olive branch, how much more those that are naturally a part of that branch will be brought into the olive tree? You know, Ken, I don't know if we, maybe it's just me, but I'm not sure that we always appreciate uh, the beauty and the courage uh, and the wisdom and guidance of St. Paul. Uh, Because in a sense, in this passage, maybe all of chapter 11, uh, to a certain extent, St. Paul is treading where even angels uh, fear to tread because he's talking about the mystery of how God works in people's lives. Yeah, it, there's, right. a, there's a mystery there. And we as human beings in our, our fallenness always think we're so much wiser than we really are. And we think we've, we've got it all together. And there's not a one of us probably that doesn't come up with some kind of explanation to explain what happens in our lives and what happens in the lives of others. And sometimes we're always in the danger of projecting into other people that we think we know their motives or we know what's going on in their lives. And there's a danger in that. And, and Ken, you and I both know that there are entire theologies that look at the salvation of people and come up with completely radical uh, contradictory explanations of that. There's on the one side those that that evangelize in the name of Jesus because they believe that unless a person confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord, well then they take that, that verse from Romans 10 so literally that they believe it's all up to an individual's willful choice of Jesus. And if they don't choose Jesus, they're damned. And so they, they're motivated to evangelize, but they see that the whole picture comes down to that person's choice as if God really has nothing to do with it. It's just that person's choice. And then the other extreme are those that believe, kind of, you know, almost taking verse 29, the call of God irrevocable, the, the hyper-Calvinist position that a person has chosen before the beginning of time. Yeah, right. And they have nothing to do with it. Their will has nothing to do with it. It's totally God. So in those two extremes, it's either totally man or totally God. And the truth is, the mystery is 
a both and, the mystery of the both and. Mm-hmm. So, but so to a certain extent, it behooves us to to just withhold our opinions on this great mystery. But thanks be to God, we have the Apostle Paul willing to delve into this to give us a clue on what's going on with those that heard but don't respond. What's going on? Well, I think the mystery that Paul here is talking about, he, he, he in a sense, he explains it, but his explanation, in a sense, doesn't answer our question, and, and maybe it wasn't intended to. He says in verse 25, I want you to understand this mystery, that a hardening has happened in part to Israel. Now, the translation that, I think it's the RSV, says a hardening has come upon part of Israel. Another way to say it is that in part, is there, there's a hardening that's happened until the fullness of the Gentiles happens. I think this, the fact that so many Jews did not believe in Jesus as their Messiah was truly puzzling to Paul, just as it is puzzling to us Christians, especially Catholic Christians, why so many in our Western world are so dead set against God, when God is the very source of happiness. Well, what's going on here? Well, there's a hardening, perhaps, that's taking place in our world, just as it did in Paul's world. But now, we have to understand something here, that Paul, verse 25, can admit of two different understandings, or two different readings, so to speak. Now, they're not completely in contradiction, but they're slightly different. One is that when he speaks about the hardening that's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, comes in, we can think of that, you might say, spatially or temporally. Spatially, what he's saying is this, that part of the part of the people of Israel, their hearts have been hardened until that point when all of God's intended Gentiles, all of those that God has reached out to, have come in, and then all of those Jews who are have God intended to save during that period of time will be saved. So, so what he means in verse 26 by all Israel in that case, in that interpretation, is that all of those who are truly of Israel— Remember back in chapter 9 and verse 6, he said, not all Israel are of Israel. He's saying then that in this interpretation, this spatial interpretation, you might say, is that as long as the period of the Gentiles is in force, then those that are part of the true Israel, the elect of Israel, will be saved and then the end will come. That's one interpretation. And maybe spatial is not the right word for it, but it's a partial interpretation. Then there's another interpretation which says that this hardening has come upon the people of Israel until God brings all the Gentiles in. And then after that, all Israel, meaning, you know, the vast majority or all Jews will be saved so that there's salvation still for Jews after the fullness of the Gentiles has arrived. And it depends upon how we read this phrase until the fullness of the Gentiles enters. But in either case, Paul makes it very clear in verses 23 and 24 that they cannot, the Jews cannot receive that salvation unless they believe. It says if they do not persist in their unbelief, then they will be grafted back in. You know, on, on at Easter Vigil, every mm. uh, Saturday 
uh, Easter vigil before Easter Sunday, we pray for the Jews. We pray for our older brothers and sisters in the faith that they will come to see their Messiah. That very Catholic to pray. And it means also that in practice, we may need to be very supportive of our Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, which incidentally, and this is more or less my personal opinion, but I think it, it's inconsistent with the church's teaching. Uh, there's a lot of people attacking the state of Israel right now. A lot of people attacking yeah. the Jews. And it's not just Muslims. It's a lot of secularists in this country that are attacking them. And uh, I think it's beholden upon us as, as Catholic Christians to be a strong support to our Jewish friends, both in Israel and in various other countries. I, yeah, Ken, I suppose, you know, as uh, the fathers of the church always talked about the different spiritual ways to understand Scripture. There's the mm-hmm. literal, then there's uh, the, the anagogical in the different ways. I mean, in that sense, Israel and the Gentiles has a spiritual meaning, too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, God desires, we know in, from uh, his letters to Titus and Timothy, he desires all to be saved. Right. Right. But it's we pretty well recognize that all will not be saved, because all will not, for a variety of reasons, turn. We know that God gives the freedom to everyone to respond, but there's the mystery of the work of His grace in everyone's life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so in the end, all of Israel, when we take it spiritually to mean all of God's people, all of the church— will be saved. All those who are part of the family will be saved. But throughout history, there are times when members of the church are hardened for their own sake, for their own, because of their sin, because of a variety of reasons. And uh, we see God working out the salvation of his people throughout history. And because we see that out of Abraham will not just mean the literal Jews, but everyone who through the grace of God is a child of Abraham. And so in the spiritual sense, we see this wider movement of God reaching out to his people. Yeah, and this is part of the beauty and the mystery of what Paul is saying here is that Paul, and Paul, as you said, in 1 Timothy, he later wrote, he said, God, this is in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, God wishes all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, does that have to be qualified in any way? Well, only in the sense that he desires them to come to a knowledge of the truth. But as you said before about the both and, we have to cooperate with God's desire, with God's grace, in order to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so if people don't come to a knowledge of the truth, it's because they have chosen not to do that. You know, as an educator for so many years, that's one of the things I think that grieves me is that it's not only that people are ignorant, but they don't wish to come out of their ignorance. <laughs> and they don't they don't wish to grow. They don't wish to change. They don't wish to become better in some way or more knowledgeable. Now, in a sense, we're all in that position. So I don't mean that to be judgmental of others, but it's so easier to see it in others than we it is to see it within ourselves. But... 
Where God is concerned, I mean, that's the biggest and most important issue of our life, is how we love and serve God with all of our heart. That's an area of life where we should not want to be ignorant, and God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He wants to call us out of that. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that simply by, in a sense, doing what Paul is doing here. He's reading the times that God has had, and he's seeking to know the depth of the mystery of God. And he both knows and doesn't know. He knows that God is at work, but he doesn't quite know how. All he knows is that God wants to show mercy to all. And that's what he speaks about in verses 28 through 30. He talks about the mercy of God that is for all. Ken, I'm sorry. I don't mean to digress, but as you were talking about teaching, I'm reminded that I've had the great privilege over the years to teach as an adjunct professor at a few seminarians, I mean, a few schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever they put the name by my name, adjunct was spelled A-J-U-N-K, professor. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I love teaching, and I've taught theology, and I've, but the hardest part about teaching, which would make me uh, stay up all night, was grading. I hated the grading. Oh, oh and, absolutely. And, and, yeah, yeah. and when you think about it, almost in parallel to this text, you know, part of my job as a teacher was to make that class hard for my students, not to make it a cake. You know, a hardening came on my students sometimes because I'm giving them tough materials. But I, yeah, but yeah. by grace, I would also help them know what it is they need to know for the test. I would make sure that they had all the information they needed right. to know for that test, how to write the paper, everything that I was expected of them. All they had to do was study and do it. But then it came down to grading. And I would love to have given an A to every one of my students. I'd love to pass them all. But I had to respond to how they responded. And I hated it when I had to flunk a student. I hated it when they give someone a B or a C because I knew that would help. It would hurt their grade point and maybe a job in the future. But I, I had to be just yes, according yeah. to what I had told them and according to how they responded. That's a, a weak way of describing the mystery of how we are to respond to God's call. Well, exactly. And Paul is dealing with this in verses 30 through 32. He says, he's talking now to the Gentiles, remember, to the Gentile Christians in Rome. And he says, just as you were once disobedient to God, but because of um, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, the Jews turned away. Now you've had the opportunity to receive grace and mercy from God. But now he turns that back and says, so that now they have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, you Gentiles, they may also receive mercy. The reason, according to this text, that God gave mercy to us Gentiles is, as it were, to provoke our fellow our Jews to receive and to understand that Christ is the very source, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he is, and he's founded a church. And thank God for all the wonderful brothers and sisters that we have in Jesus who are of Jewish extraction, like uh, our very dear friend, uh, Rosalind Moss, who yeah. now is 
Mother Miriam of the Lamb, and her brother David. And all of, the, of course, there's an entire organization called the Hebrew Catholics. These are people that came to see the beauty of Jesus and how he is truly the Messiah that was promised to their ancient forefathers. Thanks be to God, you and I have been brought into that same family. You know, I'm a thoroughly of a, I'm, I'm thoroughly Celtic. I mean, I'm, I'm a Scot, I'm Welsh, I'm Irish. I went back and did a, a genealogical study, which explains both uh, my, all of the problems of my life, you know. But you know what, Marcus? My ancestors were tree worshipers. I mean, they were pagans through and through. Thanks be to God that St. Patrick and the other missionaries came to the British Isles, came to to the to Ireland, what's today called the Republic of Ireland, and evangelized us and brought us Jesus. And we too now can be a part of the people of God. Kent, verse 32 is an interesting statement that he drops in the midst of this. Um, you don't know whether he's referring to some Old Testament um, axiom or this is his reflection on what he has seen, but he, the statement is, for God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Yeah. It's a fascinating thought, Ken. You know, I, I don't know if you had a chance to reflect on that. God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Well, remember back in chapters 1 and 2, in chapter 1, he talked about the horrendous um, uh, impiety and ungodliness and and filth and things that the Gentiles had fallen into. Remember, he gave those descriptions about... Uh, life about how they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And he's talking about the Gentile world here and how in the midst of all of their degradation, of their going down to the very gutter, it says that God gave them over to a reprobate mind. He's talking about the Gentiles now of his own day. But then remember that in chapter 2, he turned to the Jews among the Roman Christians. And he said, you too, who even yeah. though you have the law, you've sinned as well. God has brought condemnation to all. In other words, standing before the infinite majesty of God, Marcus, none of us, no matter whether we're Jewish or whether we're Gentile, we all are consigned to disobedience. But the beautiful, the, the, the great hope that he gives us is that the reason he did that was to have mercy upon us all. And that, I think, is where it leads Paul to this, um, you know, this great hymn of praise where he begins, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, First John chapter 1, 8, 9, and 10, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Even Jesus admitted that he can't, he didn't come here to reach the righteous. In other words, the people that think they don't need reaching. He came to reach those that recognize that they are sinners. And then he can do something with us. He can't do anything with us if we don't think we need his help. 
But when we recognize that every one of us needs his help, then we can receive his mercy because he desires to shut. I mean, that's what the whole divine mercy is about in the Catholic Church, that everyone needs to recognize that everything we have is a result of his mercy. This is um, the most beautiful. Yeah, to go to the, the end of this passage, which is really powerful, Ken, this almost a poem about the praise of God. It is, yeah. It, it, it's where he breaks out with this, oh, the depth of the will of the of the riches of the wealth, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Earlier, before this epistle, Paul had written to the Corinthians in chapter First Corinthians chapters one and two about how the the wisdom of God made foolish the wisdom of the world, and what is the wisdom and knowledge of God that makes this so? It's the realization that not only is God ultimately incomprehensible to us, but that even his ways of dealing in the world are so inscrutable. And I I like the translation here, which, which says another one, that how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out. In other words, you're never going to be able to figure out God's ways. And you know what? Great spiritual directors throughout all the ages have told us that this is true not only on a corporate level, on a level of a world in God's dealings with salvation, but it's even in dealing with each human heart, how unscrutable it is, how how difficult it is even to know our own hearts. Um, and so this is what makes Paul think... He asked this question, quoting from the book of Isaiah, for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? The God's ways of dealing with us in our ways are so difficult to describe. This should make us both hopeful that God has not abandoned us, but it should also make us very hesitant to judge others because sometimes God is dealing with other people in ways that we can't really understand. What we simply need to do is to be there. And that's why that's why we do the work that we do in the Coming Home Network. Yep. Uh, because sometimes we just have to sit and wait until people are ready to to come. Now, we, you know, we send them emails and we talk to them because we want them to understand this beautiful riches of the Catholic Church. But, but how God is dealing in their hearts is so difficult for us to say. Yeah, what a great way for Paul to end this chapter because it, the temptation could be to be pointing fingers at the Jews over there and and we've got to remember that no, we too need God's mercy. It's not about them, it's about have we responded to God's mercy and are we grateful for that? Because it's for him and through him and to him that we have all things, including his mercy and his salvation. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's how Paul ends it. That's a good way to end our program. Ken, thanks. Thank you, Marcus. And thank all of you for joining us on this program. Please connect with us through deepinscripture.com. We would love to hear your comments and, and how we can make this program better to help us all grow closer to Christ and his church. God bless you. See you next week.